Read your Bible, if you will, please. The Judges in the eleventh chapter. Reading only the first six verses for our thoughts today. Judges chapter 11. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. And he was the son of an harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons. And they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house. For thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come, be our captain that we may fight with the children of Ammon. Please turn in your hymn book with me. Stand again. Sing with me number 464. Shall prosper in 
the end The mountains in thy wrath Their ancient seats forsake The trembling earth deserts her place Her rooted pillars shake Oh, how shall guilty man contend with such a God? None, none can meet him and escape but through the Savior's blood. Thank you. Be seated. We come again this morning to our studies in the record of Israel's judges and have arrived finally to this 11th chapter. As we saw the record ending in chapter 10 some weeks ago, we were surely blessed to see that Israel had experienced a wholesale revival. Revival in the most truly godly and biblical definition. I know the word is very loosely used in our generation. But I'm saying that in chapter 10, we saw true Godly, biblical revival. Biblical in that sin was owned. In chapter 10 and verse 10, Israel said, We have sinned against thee. Sin was owned. Total surrender was accomplished. Verse 15 We have sinned, do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Total surrender was accomplished. And finally, I say it was a true and godly revival because an unreserved purging cast off all their idols. Verse 16, and they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord an unreserved purging cast off their idols. True, true and full repentance was accomplished. Next we saw that no sooner is Israel's revival noised abroad that her enemies amassed themselves to crush her. And this time with finality. Verse 17 And the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. Then as that chapter closed 
It was announced that the one thing Israel yet lacked in order to equip themselves to the task ahead was that they lacked ahead overall. Verse 18, The people and the princes of Gilead said one to another, What man is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? He shall be head overall of the inhabitants of Gilead. So as the chapter closed, the shadow of this great revival, the people recognized they were yet lacking a leader. It is in the record of chapter 11 that we find that that need is finally met. And met, I might say, from the most improbable, unexpected, and technically impossible source. Before I would begin an attempt to an exposition of these passages, I would like to bring before your mind three general considerations that I would like for you to continue to entertain throughout our study of this chapter. Number one, it is important for you to realize that there is not in this chapter a strict chronology kept. Those of you who know me best know that that is for people like me an especial difficulty. I have difficulty with chronology when it is kept. And in this chapter, it is not kept. While there is in this chapter, that is in the general flow of it, there is an overall consistency in the chronological direction. Yet as to the specific verses... There are in some places significant interruptions in that chronology. Verse 4, for example. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. Everything in verse 1, 2, and 3 are not in the chronology specifically because verse 4 actually takes back up at verse 17 of chapter 10. You see a similar thing occur in in verse 29. Not to expound that text before we get there, but there is a, in the very last phrase of verse 29, there is a significant period of time in between those last two phrases in verse 29. So I'm just simply pointing to you in a general way, realize as we take on this text that it is not keeping a strict chronology. 
Number two, in a general way, I would point you to the fact that this entire record of chapter 11 of the book of Judges is fraught with controversy. It is one of the most controversial texts in all of the Old Testament record. While I will, along the way, venture some commentary on these controversies. That is, I will not resist to sink my teeth in to some of them. Yet, I will not suggest that mine are infallible and definitive resolutions. But I leave it to each individual to work out the solution for yourself. Far greater minds than mine have historically and still remain unreconciled to the solution of some of these controversies. Thirdly and finally, in a general way, I would put before your mind that as in all other places in the Bible, we must tread these waters with caution against bringing to the text judgments and interpretations made from our advantageous position in time. You understand, we sit holding our Bible a completed revelation. Those whose lives and actions we read of in Judges chapter 11, indeed in all of the Bible, had not this completed revelation. And we dare not come to any text and bring to that text a perspective that makes interpretations from our advantageous position without regard to their context. Some in history have called this this advantageous position of ours, they have called it gospel understanding, quite appropriately. We have a gospel understanding of things that was not in the possession of the saints of old. So let us tread carefully in that matter. Now with these few preliminary considerations in mind, we would begin in earnest to look at this chapter. Israel, as I have already said, is sitting face to face with one of her oldest and most formidable enemies, the dreaded Ammonites. Verse 4 tells us, And it came to pass in process of time, after many days, you'll find the marginal reading, in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. 
Now this is one of those chronological leaps. I pointed it out earlier, and most surely it ties us back to the record in chapter 10 and verse 17. So then here we are again. Israel is on the very threshold of war. Not a war just for things like trading routes. To have ownership of trading routes. This is not just a war that they're facing disputing land boundaries. But this is a war that has the very real threat of total annihilation. The Ammonites have collected themselves and most all the scholars that I could find reading on this subject conclude that this was no ordinary dispute to be settled. But the Ammonites would be done with this nation, are well and truly done with them, and finished with them, and desire that they be no more a thorn in their side. And this is a war for the potential of total annihilation. And here they sit, just on the cusp of such a war, with no man to lead them. No man skilled to muster the armies of Israel. No man prepared. This is no exaggeration to say is a crisis hour of mammoth proportions for Israel. What is Israel to do? It is just here in the answer of that question that the record introduces us to God's answer. And might I just give you as a sidelight lesson that our God is never without an answer in the hour of our great crisis. Our God is never without an answer. And while we may find ourselves on the cusp of a crisis and the hour may have seemed to have just dawned suddenly, God has long ago been making preparation for it. Our God is never without an answer in the hour of our crisis. And so it's just here that he introduces us to the answer. Now Jephthah, verse 1, the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. The literal translation, the translators of the King James chose to use the word was, but the actual tense of that verb you might substitute in your Bible it literally now Jephthah the Gileadite had become a mighty man of valor. 
So verse 1 begins something of a biographical parenthetical in this record and carries us back all the way back in verse 1 to the birth of a national hero. (laughs) A deliverer of colossal proportions in the life of Israel. Jephthah. His name literally means the breaker through. (laughs) How very appropriate. A man who is described here in the exact same words used to describe Gideon in chapter 6 and verse 12. The literal exact same Hebrew words describe Gideon, mighty man of valor. I give you now some attempt of an outline in the exposition of these first few verses. I give you number one, the cursed fruit of a former generation. The cursed fruit of a former generation. Verse one tells us that Jephthah is said to be a son. And the literal word in the Hebrew is an only or a solitary. And therefore, very beloved, a solitary son. It's the exact same title and the exact same word that was applied to Isaac in Genesis 22 and verse 2. This very special son. But unfortunately our record tells us that this solitary one is the son of a harlot. Simeon, dressing himself to this Hebrew word, said that this word said of this word that it is it describes one who has a and I quote a public addictedness to a public vice my goodness my goodness what a description and yet another called him the child of shame the fruit of an age of licentiousness and idolatry a foundling with a shameful mystery behind his life. All of these, all of these terrible descriptions all wrapped up in that word. He was the son of an harlot. These and many other descriptions make us to know that our soon-to-be deliverer is the fruit of the vilest possible parentage. He's the cursed fruit 
of a cursed former generation. One scholar has said, Matthew Henry, that being the son of a foreign harlot, being the son of a foreign harlot, that which was not his fault was nevertheless his disgrace. It was not his fault. But it was nevertheless his disgrace. Oh, the curse. The curse of a cursed generation. The curse passes down. How many have been the cases down through time up to this our very own day? How many have been the cases who've been born, who have had to bear the shame of those who preceded them? God bringing curses down to the third and fourth generation. Some of us know that. Some of us know that experientially. Some of us are the fruit of cursed generation. The fruit of a cursed generation I give you. But then I give you number two. First, there was the cursed fruit of a former generation. And now I give you the calloused folly of a faithless generation. The calloused folly of a faithless generation. Verse 2, And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Oh, oh, the calloused father of this faithless generation with no regard for God, no regard for His law. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 21, Moses had instructed Israel for them that they should not even, in the words of that text, not even vex a stranger. For ye were once strangers. Not even a stranger should Israel offend and vex them. Because you were once strangers, Moses said. And this is not even a stranger. This is a half-brother. This is a son of their father. But this faithless generation is calloused. And in their folly they threw him out. Oh, you remember. I'm sure you remember. That David, David chided Saul for this very same crime. Later on, first in history, first Samuel chapter 26 and verse 19 in that speech where David is chiding them 
chiding him. In chapter 26 and verse 19, he said, Now therefore, I pray thee, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If the Lord hath stirred thee against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the tabernacle of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. David rebuked Saul for this very thing. You've driven me out. You've sent me out and told me I can't even have access to the tabernacle of God. Go serve other gods. Whoa, the callous folly of a faithless generation. Oh yes. James chapter 2 and verse 13 indeed does tell us that our God shall have judgment without mercy. But for us, We who are sharers in the same common depravity, we who are we are admonished to be patient, to have grace, to have mercy. In the words of Luke six and thirty-seven, forgive and you shall be forgiven. But all this, as we see in our text. This is a calloused, faithless generation. Yes, it's true, Jephthah was the son of a strange woman. But they were sons too of the same man that took that strange woman. Into his bosom. One commentator has said, either from selfishness or a false feeling of shame, they expelled him from their father's house, closing the door of peaceful, honorable toil and compelling him to resort to a career of bloodshed and irregularity. The very man who might all of them, the very men, who might, any of them, might have committed a like sin to that of Jephthah's fathers, are forward enough to rid themselves of its results. Oh, what a calloused folly from this faithless generation. But I give you number three. The calculated formulations. (laughs) I've tried to alliterate this for your memory. The calculated formulations of the divine operations. Can I give you that whole phrase in one word? Providence. (laughs) The calculated formulations of divine operations. In a word, providence. Verse 3, Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there 
were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. Oh, in God's all-wise superintending providence, Jephthah is cast out right into the ranks of those whom God is preparing him to destroy. <laughs> oh, how often has our God done this? Here in forced exile, he turns to a life of marauding and bloodshed. A highwayman, a freebooter. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said these men led a freebooting life, sustaining themselves by frequent incursions on the Ammonites and other neighboring people in the style of Robin Hood or the Highland Reverse in the border forays. Even when England and Scotland were at peace, such men existed. The same kind of life is led by many an Arab or Tartan to this day who as the leader of a band acquires fame by stirring and gallant adventures. And it is not deemed dishonorable among them when the expeditions are directed even against those of their own tribes because it is their way of life. And in God's will and purposes, Jephthah is thrust against his will again into this life. Somebody said he's compelled to take up his abode in a far off border town near the Ammonite. That hereditary enemy of Israel. And surrounded by the conditions of a desert life where he had to be a law unto himself. A life of guerrilla warfare with its comparatively loose morale is thrust upon him. Men of like misfortune and disposition all more or less compromised with the lives of their own nations. They gather around Him and look to Him for direction and initiative. And thus by divine direction the groundwork is laid for a national leader of men with expertise an extensive knowledge of Israel's prime enemy. (laughs) Oh, hallelujah. The wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. Oh, we are not... Are we not put to the memory of Joseph? I preached somewhat about Joseph here a week or so ago. Does this not put us in the memory of God's divine direction of His operations in the life of Joseph? Blessed Joseph. 
set in the midst of the land of the enemy. Just like Jephthah. Oh, how wise is our God. How unsearchable are His ways. It was the sage wisdom of dear old Rogers in 1615 who said it this way. Let us not wonder, though the Lord mix troubles with blessings. And as I may say, mix blemishes with beauties. Waltz with perfections. Paul lifted up to the third heaven was not so safe as being buffeted. A little abasement may prevent the greatest of all. A little abasement may prevent the greatest of all. Yea, I say that some chastisement laid upon us by the Lord doth keep us oft times from perishing in the world. And so sickness and poverty do take heart from sinning. Whereas health and wealth emboldens us to sin. Therefore, if thine affliction come from the Lord, if thine affliction come from the Lord, I mean, when no apparent cause of thy drawing it to thyself can be seen, and so as thou sufferest not for evil doings, if that be the case, wait, he says, wait for some special good to come thereby unto thee and to that end labor to make use of it. Jephthah, You've been run out. You've been cast out. You've been thrown into a life you never chose for yourself or wanted for yourself. But dear old Roger said, just wait a bit. Just wait a bit. Yep, the special blessing is coming for you. Roger said, and if it be an hindering of thy body, loss, disease, pain, and such like. Look that it be to the benefit of thy soul and that thou have a rich and large supply that way. For so the Lord is often wont to deal with His own. And that to the end they may see cause to say as David did, it is good for us that we have been afflicted. (laughs) Oh, Jephthah, Jephthah! Oh, Joseph! Could we just encourage our hearts? Joseph, don't despair in the pit of rejection. Joseph, don't despair on the auction block of slavery. Joseph, don't despair in the prison of forgotten righteousness. God is ordering His glorious plans for Israel's deliverance. God is ordering His plans for deliverance. Rogers also points our hearts to this truth that it was by means of a base and shameful birth, a 
and by means of a gross abuse by his brethren, if I may shorten it in this way, it was by hard providences that God fitted him for service. Oh, could I just say it again? My point in the outline. The calculated formulations of divine operations. Could I just give you another very quick lesson from this before I move? It is often the way of our God to humble. Nay, may I say, humiliate His servants before He uses them. It is often the way of our God to humiliate His servants before He uses them. You see, this abandoned, abused youth is to be Israel's deliverer and judge. But not before putting him through these hard places in providence. God by these will not only humble him, but humble Israel. For they must call on Him. I thought much about this this week. Emmerich was off participating in a wedding of a fellow classmate. I thought about my conversations with those young ministerial students there in his school. They've never known humility. Many of them have never had an experience in in their lives that brought them to a place of humility and humiliation. God will humble His servant before He uses him. But wait, don't miss another side lesson here. Though God, God was working His perfect will, even in these wicked brothers, yet they remain blood guilty. They, our text tells us in verse 2, They thrust him out. They thrust him out. Oh, how quick some are to add insult to injury. They ought to have hidden his infamy and covered his unmerited shame. 
rather than drawing public attention to it. Can I just say to you, some people are very quick to add insult to injury. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 and 9, we find this admonition. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. But these brothers cast him out. But finally this morning, I give you point number four. The crowning fullness. The crowning fullness of divine provision. Oh, verse 5. And so it was. And so it was. (laughs) I love that little phrase. It's almost sounds like the Holy Spirit using irony. So it was that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah. Whoa, the crowning fullness of divine provision. Oh, hallelujah. The outcast by men (laughs) is God's deliverer. Hallelujah! Could I just say it? Using a southern colloquialism, it's fetching time now. Amen? It's fetching time now. Oh yes, they've cast him out. But God in His sovereign will and providence has prepared Himself a deliverer. And now comes the crowning fullness of divine provision. Hallelujah! It's fetching time. They sent the fetch Jephthah. <laughs> oh, none other were so perfectly fitted as he None other was so well equipped as he. None other was so divinely formed as he. It's fetching time for him. Now Israel says, Come and be our captain. (laughs) Oh, the glorious reward of the faithful. The blessed psalmist said in chapter 27, verse 10, When my father and my mother forsake me, well, then it is that the Lord will take me up. Hallelujah. The Lord has taken him up. Israel has cast him out, but the Lord has taken him up. 
Weeping may endure for the night, saint. But joy comes in the morning. Oh, let our God be praised for His glorious provision. Someone as well said he was he has somehow managed to preserve a measure of morality and religious observance even in that wilderness stronghold. The worship of Jehovah is maintained and the heart of this chieftain beats true to all the traditions of Israel. His personal influence, his warlike prowess are at his service. His greatest exploits, said this commentator, are not those of a private marauder, but those of a saving patriot. (laughs) Somebody said in the hour of Israel's need, repentant now and humbled by revival, its elders approached this outlaw whom they had expelled. The man himself is not prepared for this singular conversion. He questions them suspiciously. Nay, with all his magnanimity, he reminds them of their different behavior in years gone by. They admit it all. But they are too humbled to make evasion or to conceal their real motive. He is master of the situation. Hallelujah! His whole previous training and reputation now stand Him in good stead. And He understands a little of God's dealings with Him. Oh, thank God for that blessed day when our God takes us up. Hallelujah! He said this commentator is master of the situation. (laughs) Boy, that's a change, isn't it? (laughs) From before. That's a change. God has taken him up. And so we find the answer to my question at the end of chapter 10. What is Israel to do? The answer is, God has furnished Himself a deliverer. Before I close, can I just point your heart to how this, how Jephthah here bears the typology of the Christ of God. Punished for sins that were not His own. Driven, not just out of the temple, not just out from among his brethren, not just out of his own town, but driven completely out of this world by the wicked folly of a faithless generation. Well, <laughs> punished for sins that are not his own, driven out from his people. By faithless generation, only to be then established as their deliverer and ruler at last. Hallelujah. 
What a picture. What a picture of the Christ here in this man, Jephthah. Here's the answer to the question, what is Israel to do? God has furnished Himself a deliverer. And we shall see that deliverer yet again. Turn with me, if you will, please, in your hymn book and stand with me. Sing with me number 571. 571. Where the clouds of sorrow roll and trials whelm the mind. When faint with grief thy weary soul no joys on earth can find. Then lift thy voice to God on high. Drop the trembling tear and hush the low complaining sigh. Fear not, thy God is near. Stand with me, please.
Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. But unto Thy name give mercy. Give glory for Thy mercy. For Thy truth's sake. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. But unto Thy name give glory. For thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. We bless thy holy name for your divine operations. Blessed Lord, how dim is our sight, how feeble is our apprehension. When you work in us by these hard providences, thou art preparing to deliver thy people, beginning in our own soul. Help us. Help us to wait. As dear old Rogers has admonished us for hundreds of years gone by, wait. Wait, for the Lord is preparing a special blessing. Oh, God, help us. Help us to wait. Help us in the wait. Deliver that people, beginning in me. In Jesus' name.